you have a Bible, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll be starting in verse 10. And I want to talk about unity in the church today. Unity in the church. It says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. There's some drama in this church. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. So let's talk about that, these divisions that were forming in the church in Corinth. You know, that last group, I follow Christ. Obviously, it's good to follow Christ, but I think there's a good chance that what he's talking about there is that there are some Christians who will take non-essential secondary issues and turn them into essential issues. There are some issues that are non-essential, open-handed issues, and there are some that are essential, closed-handed. And, and there can be some judgy Christians who turn secondary issues into a matter of salvation when it's not you're like we're the only real true christians because at our church we sing out of a hymnal not like you crazy modern people with your electric guitars like that would be an example like we're the only true christians so that's what i think he's talking about there and then there's a group you know i follow cephas cephas was the apostle peter and as you know he was a jewish believer in Jesus. So he, he really probably resonated with the Jewish Christians and understood the Jewish culture and the law of Moses. And, and so that, man, I, I can imagine the Jewish Christians in Corinth really admired Cephas. And, and some of you, you know, you ha have a lot of culture in your background. You're really proud of your heritage and where you come from. And you probably have preferences and it might even feel more comfortable to worship a certain way. Some of you, your preferences, you wish we had hymnals in, in the chair. Some of you, your preferences are like you, you wish that we had more tambourines at church. Um, some of you wish I preached in a suit every week. Right? And it's okay to have preferences and opinions, but that's not the most important thing. Then there were some that said, I follow Apollos. Apollos was known to be eloquent and intellectual, intellectual. And uh, we, we have some really intellectual people here today. You is smart. <laughs> and you like Hebrew word studies and charts in your sermons, you love verse-by-verse -verse preaching, and you want your sermon to have footnotes and appendices. Otherwise, you feel like it's a little shallow. And it's great to be intellectual. I'm grateful for your brain. And then some said, I follow Paul. Remember, Paul helped found the church in Corinth. So he actually had a history with the Christians there, about 18 months where he was preaching to them, baptizing them, praying for them, they were being healed. So he made a big personal impact on that church. And likewise, some of you have had church leaders or pastors who made a big personal impact on you and they have a special place in your heart. And all of that is amazing as long as you remember that all of our affinities, all of our preferences are secondary to our shared identity in Christ. Amen? He goes on to make this point by asking a question that's kind of sarcastic. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he's being sarcastic here. He's giving it to him. 
I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, and so no one can say you were baptized in my name. Now he's kind of having like an old guy moment. He goes, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. (laughs) I love that part. So let me just explain this a little bit. Um, I talked about this in the first week, how Sosthenes, who was mentioned earlier in the chapter, was the leader of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth, right next to the place where Paul had been preaching, Paul led Sosthenes, a Jew, to believe in Christ. They, they replaced Sosthenes with Crispus, who became the new leader of the Jewish synagogue. And guess what? Paul led him to Christ too. They kept setting him up and Paul kept knocking him down. And some of, some of the people Paul was talking to there was, he says, I'm, gl- I'm glad I didn't baptize you because otherwise you'd be even more uh, you know, consumed with or uh, obsessed with me, devoted to me than you are. And I want you to be devoted to Christ. As a pastor, I wanna tell you, it's okay to love your church. It's okay to love a church leader. It's okay to love a pastor as long as you don't get confused about who is the pastor and who is Jesus, right? <laughs> Pastors are not perfect. Jesus is. Pastors are leaders, yes, but Jesus is the king of kings. Pastors are teachers of truth, whereas Jesus is the source of truth. Never put a man on the throne that belongs to Jesus Christ, or else you'll be continually disappointed or disenchanted. All of this that we do is about Jesus, amen? Verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I'm gonna talk about that second part next time, but notice how he said, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Okay, so a lot of people got baptized last week, like 31 people, right? And this week, 48 people signed up to get baptized. It's awesome. And baptism is such an important sign. It's a sign that we believe, but it is not what saves. So saved people should be baptized, but baptism is not what saves. Now, now this is technically a secondary issue. Um, people have some different theolo- theological positions on this. Uh, we believe in what's called credo baptism or believer's baptism. In other words, you believe in Jesus and then you get baptized. It's not going under the water that completes and secures your salvation. It's faith that saves, and baptism is a sign of that faith. So we're saved by grace through believing, and we see here that baptism isn't necessary for salvation. You notice Paul said, Christ didn't send me to baptize. If baptism was necessary for salvation, Paul would have traveled with a dunk tank, and he would have baptized everyone up in there. But he said, that's not my main job, I'm here to preach the gospel. Someone else can baptize you, I'm here to preach the gospel. And the gospel is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that God became man, put on flesh. His name is Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin without sin. He lived a perfectly sinless life that we could never live. And yet he died in our place on the cross to pay the price for our sins so that God could in his justice forgive us grant us new life and adopt us into his family. Now through faith in Jesus, we're no longer destined for an eternity in hell away from God, but we will be with God for eternity in heaven. That's the good news. 
And I want to go back now to verse 10 and hang out there. Verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. So depending on the context, this is a plural word in Greek, adelphoi, which can be translated brothers or brothers and sisters. So in a modern translation, sometimes you'll see brothers and sisters, and that's not an attempt to be politically correct and inclusive. It's not saying that men and women are interchangeable, right? It is an accurate interpretation, like if I said, hey, it's good to see you guys today. You know based on the context, I'm not leaving the women out from that statement, right? I I mean everybody. So that's what you see there. And he goes on to say, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is significant. This is his way of saying, this is serious. There's another place in 1 Corinthians 7 where he says, I do not have a command from the Lord for you, but what I do offer you is advice and wisdom for you to consider. And that's good. It's good to consider the difference between a command from God and advice from godly men. When God gives you a command, you must obey it. When people give you advice, you should consider it if they're wise. People sometimes ask me for guidance, and I'm try, I try to be clear if, hey, I'm telling you something God clearly said, and you should do this, or, hey, here's some wisdom, here's some advice for you to consider, and then God can lead you in how to apply it to your life as your conscience leads, okay? And so Jesus is... is uh, this, is, this is him saying, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is a way of communicating, you really need to do this. This is not optional. You must do this. And so we really need to listen and do this. Here's what he says we should do, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that you agree in what you say. Another translation says that all of you live in harmony, harmony. I want you to understand this, that harmony is not conformity. That does not mean that we all have to be the same and have the exact same opinion because that will never happen. We live in an individualistic society in America, so sometimes we can be too individualistic, like I don't need anyone else. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I can do what I want. I want to be my own man. That's normal for Western society. Eastern societies tend to be more communal. But we, although we're individuals, we should live together in harmony. So I want you to think about, like on a piano, there's a lot of different keys on a piano, and that's a good thing. The piano needs a lot of keys in order to be used as an effective instrument. So like, here's, here's like a, a C. That's just one note on the piano. Now, if this is all I played, it would be annoying. It's a good thing that in a church like ours, there are a lot of different people, right? Uh, when, When you have a lot of keys on a keyboard, just like you have a lot of people in a church, you could use those keys in a disjointed way that does not produce harmony. And that's how, unfortunately, some churches function. There's a lot of people, but they're not working together in harmony, but when you, as individuals, work together in harmony, you start to get something that becomes pleasant to the ear. And it can be tempting at times to think, you know, I wish everybody 
was more like me. That would solve a lot of problems if everybody, if everybody was more like me. But you know what I've realized? The church doesn't need another me. One is plenty. And thank God that we're different and we have different gifts. And even if we're not doing the exact same thing at the same time, it still creates harmony. Right? Because we're all, we're all united. We're agreeing. We're, we're working together. And that's what allows a piano to be an effective instrument. And that's what allows a church to be effective for the Lord Jesus. We need to work together as one. It goes on to say this. Let there be no divisions among you. No divisions. That means don't be divided. Think about all the ways the culture, our world, wants to divide people today. It pits women against men. It pits children against their parents, young against the elderly, poor against the rich, natural-born citizens against immigrants, people of different ethnicities, right? Different skin color, eye color, hair color, accents. The world tries to divide people in so many different ways. And listen, it's okay that we partially shape our identity based on the communities that we belong to, but listen to this. Every affiliation must be subjected to our primary identity in Christ. Before any other category that you identify with, you should identify with Christ. Identifying with Christ trumps everything else in your heritage. Before I even think about myself as a man, I should think about myself in Christ as a Christian man. I don't get to just wake up tomorrow and say, you know what, I feel like being a woman now. Because my identity as a man is also subjected to Christ and common sense. I love being married. I love being a father. I love being a pastor. I love being a citizen of the United States. But as good as all that is, it's all secondary to my citizenship in the kingdom of God. Amen? In Galatians 3.28, it says, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that is exactly what this is talking about, that we are not divided, we are made one. We're not divided by earthly categories. We're united by our King, Jesus, who saves us. And then then it says this, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Don't be divided, be perfectly united. So because of political correctness, some churches have tried to force diversity in an unnatural way and have consequently become divided, divided. Jesus did not command us to become diverse. Nothing in scripture commands us to become diverse. Scripture commands us to preach the gospel, and when we do that, it automatically results in diversity. Because the gospel transcends culture, it transcends borders, it transcends language, it transcends all the natural dividing lines and unites us as one in Christ. So that's why heaven will be very diverse, okay? Scripture does multiple times command us to be united, that we should think of ourselves as one, as brothers and sisters, as part of the same family, because when we are united, we are more powerful. I wanna use the illustration of a shotgun shell. I didn't know we were already gonna have a gun on stage today, but bear with me. But a shotgun, even the same size shotgun, can shoot different types of uh, ammunition here. The same shotgun shell can hold many projectiles or 
one big projectile or even something in between this. So on the left there, you see birdshot. And that's a lot of little BBs that get you know, fitted in there. And when that projectile is fired, the BBs go out and they spread into a wide pattern. And this is typically used for just hunting small game, those little tiny BBs. If you tried to use those little tiny BBs for you know, self-defense or to shoot you know, a big animal, you would not do what you hope to accomplish. You would just annoy the person, right, pretty much. Like, uh, but on the other hand, you have something like this, a slug. And with this projectile, you have just one big mass. It's firing out of an ounce of lead. gets fired out of this thing. Not a bunch of little BBs spreading out. One big projectile, this slug here. And with this, you can take down big game. And not, and not just big game, but you could honestly bust through cinder block walls with that because it's, it's one big mass. And you know, a little interesting tidbit for all the nerds who got good grades in school, Newton's second law of motion is that force equals mass times acceleration. Well, in other words, the faster we move and the more united we are, the more powerful of an impact we can make. Speed comes from organizational leadership and resources. You need clear vision, you need leaders leading, you need people following, giving, and serving. And to be unified, you need one mission, one vision. In a lot of churches, you got a lot of people, but they're all kind of doing their own thing, going in different directions like that bird shot. And, and although it can accomplish some good, it's not as powerful as it could be if the people were united going in the same direction together. It's one of the principles of warfare, mass. It's the same thing. So uh, the question is, how do we hold on to unity when we know that there's a lot of diversity? We have a lot of people from different backgrounds with different preferences and a lot of different opinions. I know, because you share them with me. So here's what Augustine said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. This is St. Augustine, a guy who lived a long, long time ago. In essentials, matters of salvation, unity. Here's our church's mission and theological issues that are a matter of salvation, that Jesus is the only way to be saved, that he rose from the dead, right? Unity, there is no room for debate. We're not gonna have two visions because that creates division. In non-essentials, liberty. These are open-handed issues. These are personal preferences. Man, one person wants a choir with robes. Other people want a rock band singing praise of Jesus. That's okay. You can have preferences. What we should have is liberty. Like, it's okay that you prefer different things than I prefer. You might have one view of how the end times is going to play out. Another person might have another view of how the end times is going to be out. And there's room for that. There's liberty because nobody's 100% sure. We just know Jesus is coming back, right? But then in all things, charity, that's a way of saying, no matter what it is that we're dealing with, we should show love to one another. We should assume the best about one another. We should give each other the benefit of the doubt. And non-essentials, as interesting as they can be, and sometimes they are significant, but usually they are not worth dividing over. And honestly, if you go to a church and another Christian has a different um, view on a non-essential matter than you, if you're spiritually mature, it shouldn't even bother you. You should be able to go like, okay, well, that's not a matter of heaven or hell. I'll see that person in heaven either way, and then we'll find out who's right. 
Now this week we're celebrating our 10th anniversary as a church. It's been an incredible decade and we're looking forward to the next decade. And I'm not someone who feels the need to come up with like a word of the year or a verse of the year every year. But sometimes I do feel like God impresses things on me for our church. And for example, like 2019 was really clear. I felt like God was impressing this word on on me for our church. And the word was bold. And so we spent a whole year focusing on being bold, bold witnesses for Jesus, bold believers in God's word, right? Bold believers in this culture. People gave boldly to build the building that I'm in right now. And a lot of people have come to our church. Do you think that it's a coincidence that in 2019, God had us spend a whole year focused on boldness. Do you think he knew what was going to happen in 2020? I think he, he knows everything. And while a lot of other churches were really struggling and people were kind of shriveling and becoming fearful, our church was able to step out and be bold. And because of that, God blessed us and we grew. So a couple months ago, Amy came to me because she leads our creative department and they were trying to work ahead. And she was like, hey, you know, new year, new decade. You feel like God's like giving you a word or a verse or something? I was like, no. (laughs) But I did feel like God was leading me to have a a new mission statement for our church, to give us a new mission statement. And it's not that there was anything bad about our old mission statement. So that everything we do is so that people far from God can experience new life in Jesus. Of course, we're all about that. But it didn't fully communicate who we are. And it frustrated me. And a lot of times frustration leads to revelation. And I felt like God was leading us to clarify what we do and who we are so that when people come to this church, they know what we're about and what we do. And I like simple things that are clear. So I'm here to let you know today, this is our mission statement as a church going forward into the second decade. Honor God, equip believers, reach the lost. What does this church do? It's that. Honor God, equip believers, reach the lost. Everything we do falls under this category. And I want to break it down so you can be united in it. First, we are here to honor God. We are here for God's glory. And there are some evangelistic churches that are very outward focused and want to reach others like our church. We've always been really obsessed with just reaching other people who are far from God. But the primary purpose of the church is to glorify God. Some people will say in seeker sensitive evangelistic churches, they'll say, we don't exist for us, we exist for the world. And that's actually not true. The church exists for the glory of God. And we exist as the people of God to live for him as a living sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's true in business, in your family, in your church, as you play. Everything you do should be to honor God. And that word glory is the same word in Greek as honor. It's the word doxa. It means to glory, to honor, it's heaviness, praise, dignity, worship, all that is communicated there. So listen, if all we did was come together on Sunday and sing praise to God and declare his goodness and give him offerings of of worship, right, that would still be us fulfilling our purpose of honoring God. But honor for God also results in living for God. If you honor him, you are going to live according to his commands. 
unfortunately, not everyone who claims the name of Christ actually honors Christ. And Jesus talked to people like that in Matthew 15, verse 7. He said to some religious people, he said, you hypocrites. It's really talking pretty tough there. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You hypocrites. Sometimes people will tell me, Pastor Ryan, you should be more sweet and gentle like Jesus. I'm like, mm, are you sure that's what you want? Now, sometimes people will point to Christians who sin and they'll say, man, Christians are all a bunch of hypocrites. That's actually not true. We are not perfect, but we're the first people to tell you that. That's like the point of this, that we are all falling short of the glory of God and we all sin. Like nobody up in here is pretending to be perfect. That's the point. That's why we need a savior because we can't save ourselves. So we're not perfect, none of us including me, we're not perfect, we need a savior, but we're also, we're not hypocrites because we actually want to be people who do what the Bible says. That doesn't mean that we always perfectly accomplish that goal, but when we fall short, we repent of sin, we get up, we move forward in God's grace, and then we try to be more like Jesus moving forward each day because living for the Lord honors the Lord and it leads to our blessing. He wants to be blessed. Amen. That wasn't a trick question. I want to be blessed. <laughs> First Samuel 2.30, God says this, but I will honor those who honor me, Amen. and I will despise those who think lightly of me. Right. In Hebrew, the word for honor, it communicates the idea of weightiness, weight, right? Th- think about this. If a stranger walked up to you in the grocery store and started giving you advice about how to manage your budget and raise your kids, How many of you would put a lot of weight into that stranger's advice? No, you'd say, you don't know me. I don't know you. Other than respecting you as a fellow human, I don't really care what you have to say. You would take that advice lightly. But if, on the other hand, you heard from, let's say, an older, godly man or woman who was wise and successful, man, they had raised their kids up, and the kids love them and love Jesus, and people respect them, and their life is just a track record of faithfulness. If they gave you advice, you would put a lot more weight in their advice. It'd be easy to honor them and put weight in their advice. Let me ask you this. How much weight do you put in God's word? Do you treat God's word like advice coming from a stranger, or do you submit to it as a command from your creator? You want to know one litmus test for how much you honor God? Proverbs 3.9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth. It's easy to talk the talk, but your checking account will reveal if you walk the walk. This isn't a sermon about money, but Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I praise God that we have a giving, generous church because that reflects a lot of people who have honor for God in their heart. They don't just say it, they actually show it in the way that's the most personal and in many ways requires the most faith. We don't, we don't just emphasize, though, giving financially, but also being generous to God with our praise and worship. In Psalm 86, it says, with all my heart, I will praise you, O Lord my God. I will give glory 
same word as honor, to your name forever. So that's why at our church, it's so important that when we take time to praise and worship and sing to God, that we really engage in that, that we show our passion, that we do it like God deserves it because he does. He saved us from sin and gave us victory and he reigns on high and everything is in control in his hand and he has good plans for us and we can trust him. He deserves worship. So when we take time to worship, man, we should sing loud. It doesn't matter if you have a good voice, just make sure you have a loud voice. We should clap. We should raise our hands we should do it like it matters because God deserves it and then first Peter three fifteen says in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy and that word holy means separate we should honor Christ as set apart from every other leader or influence in our life we should recognize that Christ alone is the one who saves his name is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. There is no one like him. Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, they're not in the same category at all. There is Jesus and then there is everyone else, right? So we keep ourselves very clear on that. At our church, Jesus will always be the main attraction. If you agree, say amen. Here's the second thing. We exist to equip believers. As a believer, you'll grow organically just because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you and he will produce good fruit in your life. He's faithful to complete the good work he started in you. But spiritual organic growth is something that just happens passively simply because you're alive. Before you were spiritually alive, you were spiritually dead and you were not growing spiritually. Now that you're spiritually alive in Christ, you will grow. It's, pass- it's passive though. Just like you plant a seed and that thing grows pretty much without a lot other than water and sunshine. But Hebrews 13 talks about equipping. And equipping is active. It says this, may he, God, equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. Equipping is not only a biblical word, but it's an active word. In Greek, it's the word katartizo. And it means more than just equip, like giving someone equipment. There's more than that. It means to perfect, to equip, to fit out. Like a soldier going into battle is equipped and fitted out with the kit and the the weapons that he needs. To prepare, to put in order, to mend and repair, to complete and strengthen. Equipping is multifaceted and looks different based on where you are at. And there are many different people in this church with many different types of backgrounds and histories. Hear this, equipping happens by the Spirit's power for the Father's glory through the Son's church. Equipping happens by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God the Father through the church of Jesus Christ. And you need to be equipped based on where you are today. If you came in today and you have a lot of trauma and pain in your past that you're wrestling with, God wants to use this church to mend and repair your heart. It's one of the ways that he wants to equip you. If your life is chaotic and has been totally out of control, God wants to use this church to put your life in order. If you feel too weak to carry on with life, God will use this church to strengthen you. If you have a lack of meaning 
in your life. God will use this church to give you purpose and the tools to accomplish that purpose. And that is all done through the Spirit's power for the Father's glory. We exist as a church to equip you. We talked about how our church has been growing, and it has. I remember, you know, 10 years ago where we were at. Last week, we had almost 3,900 people come to church, which is crazy. It's crazy. If you would have asked me 10 years ago, where would we be at, I wouldn't have imagine that. It's, a, it's amazing. There's a saying that's kind of like we tend to overestimate what we can accomplish in a year, and we underestimate what we can accomplish in a decade. And man, God does big things through faithfulness and continued devotion to his commands. But I want to just make this clear. It is not my job as a pastor to build this church. It's your job. Like Bill Belichick said, do your job. <laughs> right? It's my job as the pastor to equip you to build and do your job. In Ephesians 4.11, it talks about this. It says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and the teachers. I just want to point out, I did not call myself a gift. God did. <laughs> just being clear on that. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, which is the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature, notice that word, in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. He's our standard. Some of you have been faithful church goers for a long time, but God is calling you to be a church builder. Let me tell you what, I love baby Christians. I do because that means that there is new life in Jesus. If you didn't have any baby Christians in a church, that means that there's not new life. People aren't getting saved. So I love baby Christians. If you have you know, young kids or you have had young kids, you know kids say the funniest things, don't they? And so do baby Christians. <laughs> I remember years ago, I was preaching in the old auditorium and I walked off stage and I was just like saying hi to people in, in the room and I was meeting people and there was a guy, he just started coming to church two weeks ago. He just gave his life to Jesus. And I saw him, I shook his hand. I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm good. And he goes, pastor, that was a great effing talk. <laughs> and you know what I said? Thanks. He didn't even know better. He's a baby Christian. And I love, I love that he didn't know better, but he was excited about the things of God. I am, I am sorry for using such harsh letters. And if that is hard for you, this church might not be right for you. You're going to struggle here. But my philosophy has always been, it's our job to catch them, and the Holy Spirit will clean them. We'll clean them up, right? And we're going to help them to be mature by equipping them. Uh, do you know why baby Christians don't grow? Mainly because they're malnourished. They get a few spiritual calories on Sunday at church, and then they starve Monday through Saturday. This, in case you're new, is a Bible church. 
We believe the Bible is true and God's word. We love the Bible. We submit our lives to the Bible. We celebrate the Bible. We are not apologetic for what God says in the Bible. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E, Bible. Yes, some of you, this is gonna blow your mind, but did you know you can read it outside of church? <laughs> on your own and everything. Second Timothy 3 describes how all scripture is God-breathed, and in verse 17 it says, God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And this is what you need to be complete, to be strengthened, to be mended and repaired, to be made whole, to be equipped and fitted out and have your life in order. You need the word of God, which equips you to do every good work. Um, And then too many Christians today are falling for the deceptions of the enemy because they don't know God's word. They spend more time scrolling than reading God's word. Generation Church here is a church where we see the spiritually dead raised to spiritual life, and we see immature spiritual babies become spiritual mature believers as God's word permeates every part of their life, and they submit to it. If you agree, say amen. Amen. Awesome. And then here's the third thing. We exist to reach the lost. Reach the lost. Now, A lot of churches emphasize reaching the lost. Not every church. There are some churches, their attitude is like, us four and no more. (laughs) Us three, let it be. Us two, that'll do. Just one, we're done. (laughs) But we want to stay focused on reaching lost people. And, you know, there are many churches like that. Uh, In the valley here, there are a lot of good churches like that. Sometimes they're referred to as seeker-sensitive churches. And... Unfortunately, that means that sometimes those churches tend to avoid culturally controversial subjects. And they, they think they're doing it for the, a good reason. They think they're avoiding those parts of scripture that make people uncomfortable because they think that will help seekers be more comfortable in church. They wanna be sensitive to seekers who are not yet believers. The problem is that when you when you water down the word of God and you avoid the parts of scripture that make people uncomfortable, you fail to accomplish your primary purpose as a church. When you make everything about reaching the lost, a lot of times these churches will fail to disciple the found. And if you don't disciple the found, the church becomes anemic and malnourished itself and remains spiritually immature and eventually loses its ability to reach the lost. Does that make sense? So it's important to be clear about the truth and not apologize for God's word. And you should understand that that doesn't stop you from reaching lost people. In the long run, it actually helps you. I've been feeling more convicted about this in the last four or five years, and we've become even more intentional about being clear to address cultural issues from Scripture. And other people, like friends of mine, people in the church even, will sometimes get concerned. Man, Pastor, you know, if you're talking about all these like tough issues, aren't you worried that that will hinder your ability to reach lost people? Do you worry about alienating lost people? And here's the thing. We don't exist to make lost people comfortable. 
We're here to reach them and help them be found. If you're in a burning building, it's not gonna help you for me to come sing you a lullaby and keep you comfortable. I need to do what it takes to jar you awake and get you out of that burning building. And sometimes that requires talking about the sensitive issues that ultimately are issues of the heart. And it hasn't hindered us from reaching the lost. In fact, every year we've reached more people. In 2021, we had 507 adults accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Isn't that awesome? In 2022, we had 731 adults accept Jesus. And last year, 2023, it was 1,306. In Luke 19, 10, it says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is what Jesus is all about. He wants to reach lost people, and we want to reach lost people because we want to be like Jesus. The word seek there is zeteo in Greek. It means to seek in order to find. We're not just looking absentmindedly. We actually want to find people to crave, to desire, to go after. We're actively pursuing them because we deeply want to see them receive Jesus. When I, when I first came to this church uh, over 10 years ago, my dad had been the pastor, and he always had an evangelistic heart to see lost people get saved. And that was what he cared about more than anything. And he was willing to make big changes at this church because his attitude was, I will do whatever it takes to reach lost people for Jesus. And he even had this attitude, like, it's not about me. It's about what it, what it takes to reach lost people for Jesus. And, and he had that desire, a craving uh, to reach the lost. And we have that desire today as a church because God has that desire to see lost people find Jesus. In 2 Peter 3, 9, it says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. He was answering the question, why has Jesus not returned yet? And he's letting them know, okay, God's not slow in keeping his promises. Here's why Jesus hasn't returned yet. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The reason Jesus hasn't returned yet is because God wanted to give more time for more people to receive Jesus and eternal life. And thank God, otherwise we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here and we wouldn't be in heaven with Jesus for eternity. This word perish is the same word used to describe lost people who are far from God, who don't know Jesus, who are currently destined for hell. I, I love you enough to tell you the truth, that hell is a real place of suffering and torment for eternity. And people who go there have lost all hope of salvation. Anyone who dies in their sin, apart from God, will spend eternity in hell. And that's the truth. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7. He said, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Let me just tell you this, Jesus is the narrow gate. Jesus is the narrow way to eternal life. And, and he tells us it's not always gonna be easy. In fact, that way can be even more difficult than the highway to hell that most people are on. 
but it leads to life. And so whatever comes on that road is what we accept. Whatever it takes to follow Jesus, whatever it takes to receive eternal life, whatever it takes to experience salvation, man, that's what we want. Jesus is the narrow gate, and you know what else? Scripture calls him the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd, and there are many people who are far from God, but Scripture talks about the good shepherd who will leave the 99 sheep that he still has to pursue the one lost sheep. He doesn't say, well, I got 99, that's good enough. I don't really care about one loss. You know, that's just part of doing business. It is what it is. He leaves the 99 to go and bring back the one. And that's how Jesus still feels today. Jesus today would say, man, there are billions of people who have believed in me and receive eternal life, but I still want the one. I still want the one in your family. I still want the one in your workplace. I still want the guy who lives on your street. I still want that one. And he wants to work through his church to reach them. If you come to this church for a while, you're gonna notice that almost every week we give lost people a chance to accept Jesus. And there are two benefits to that primarily. The first is, if you're already a Christian, that time of praying to accept Jesus it reminds you of what God has done for you and all that you have to be grateful for. And also, it tells you that if you invite a friend or a family member or a coworker or a neighbor to church on any given Sunday, no matter what the subject is about, we're gonna give them a chance to receive Jesus as Lord. And guess what? Many times, that's what happens. They do. It's, fu- it's funny how it happens. You'll preach a sermon on like a weird subject and someone will be like, I still want to get saved anyway. Because it's not really about the words coming from the pastor, but the Holy Spirit uses that to draw them and convict them and pull them. Do you know this, that Jesus is building his church through his people and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That means the devil can't stop it. He knows he can't stop it. He knows the scriptures well better than some of us. And he knows if he can't stop it, the next best thing is to slow it down. If he can't stop it, the only way to slow it down is to divide it. So he wants to get a church divided with different uh, visions, different missions, different preferences, bad attitudes, uh, bitterness, offense, fighting, quarreling. And Jesus says, no, I want you to be united. I want you to be one. So we as a church, we're going to be one. We're going to be united. This church is all about Jesus. We have one mission. We're here to honor God, equip believers, and reach the lost. If you agree, say amen. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads with me for a moment. And if you just, at this moment, feel the Lord inviting you and drawing you to receive Jesus for salvation. If you're someone who's here that you know you're currently on the highway to hell and you wanna get off of it, you wanna be saved and receive eternal life. Here's the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you might think, it can't be that easy. I've done things that I'm so embarrassed of. But the Bible says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, even the worst sins can be washed away and forgiven. There's no sin that you've committed that's more powerful than the blood of Jesus that was shed to purchase your freedom and salvation. So if you're ready to accept Jesus today, I'm gonna invite you to pray this prayer with me. Just say, God, I need you to save me. I confess that I've sinned against you 
and I need a Savior. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died on the cross for my sins, and I believe he rose again. I know that through Jesus I'm forgiven and receive eternal life. And I want to follow Jesus from this day forward. Lord, I ask you to help me live for you, and I thank you for always loving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet together. We're going to take a moment to give God praise and celebrate new life through baptism. Let's do that right now. God, we love you. We thank you. We give you all the praise and glory and honor. Be lifted high in this place. Thank you for saving the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.